Please, if you would, now open your Bibles to Acts 16. Acts 16. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts in a preaching series called Life on Mission for our guests. And so today, you are in part three of three in Acts chapter 16 of Paul's ministry in Philippi. Paul's ministry in Philippi. In the last two sermons, we saw uh, Lydia get converted, this wealthy Asian businesswoman, a seller of purple. We also saw a slave woman uh, who was possessed by a spirit of divination be delivered and saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Silas get locked up for that and are cast into prison for that. And so we're going to pick it up today. Their last vignette we see in Philippi here of the conversion of the Philippian jailer and his entire household. And the, Paul's ministry in Philippi is much broader than these three uh, pictures. In fact, we have the book of Philippians to see that. That was written about 10 years later. And Paul was also in prison while he was writing Philippians, but not this prison account. So Paul ends up in prison quite a bit. (laughs) In fact, three times in the book of Acts, he's in prison. Peter ends up in prison. And so we see over and over again as the gospel is breaking ground and colliding with the political Roman authorities, just like Jesus that created a clash. There's a clash where they are imprisoned and often there is, not always, but often there is a deliverance that follows. And so today we pick it up here in chapter three. I've called today's sermon, Unlocking Transformation. Unlocking Transformation because we're gonna see that prison cell unlocked, but transformation birthed out of that miraculous rescue as well. And so I'll be preaching verses 25 all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 40. To get us started, I will just read the first uh, 10 verses, 25 to verse 34, then pray for us. So follow along, beginning in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. They're in the prison, remember. They're praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners, the other prisoners, were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Unlocking transformation. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you, God, that you condescend to our level, the unknowable, omniscient, all-powerful God. And through your word inspired the prophets, and through your word inspired the apostles and other sacred writers, Lord, to preserve these stories for us so that your grace would be accessible to us, that the story of an unlocked prison would unlock doors in our own hearts this morning.
And the salvation of this Philippian jailer would lead to the countless salvations of believers all over the world, Lord. And the very question on his lips would be our question, what must I do to be saved? And the very answer given is the same today. And so, God, we pray as we peer into this ancient story, Lord, that it would come with timeless relevance for each one of us, both personally and as a church, that you would unlock transformation in our lives in that Manoa Community Church for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Minds innocent and quiet take that for a hermitage. That famous quote comes out of a poem by Richard Lovelace, Lovelace, forgive me, a 17th century English poet. It's a poem called To Althea from Prison. Stone walls do not a prison make. And this poet was locked up for his religious convictions against the government. And he was making a statement in this that even though I am imprisoned, I view it as my hermitage. Basically, this place of prayer, this place of quiet, it is all in my head and all in my heart, whether this is a place of solace and refuge or a place of imprisonment. He says, stone walls do not a prison make. Interestingly, as we read through the book of Acts and we see the epistles, these we call the prison epistles, if you will, where Paul and the apostles are locked up, they are not locked up in their heart. They are not locked up in their soul. Paul goes so far to say, I thank God that I'm in prison because the whole imperial guard is getting to hear about Jesus. God brought me to this place so I could share Christ. Well, as we look in this scene, and we picked it up two weeks ago, where Paul and Silas are arrested for delivering a woman who is possessed by a demon for breaking the law, we're told. They're doing things that are not lawful for Romans to believe or do. They're shackled in this prison, bonds around their ankles in the inner prison. Literally, the prisoner, excuse me, the the guard we'll see today that locked them up is the very one that comes to faith in Christ. Yes, why has God locked me up in this place? He has ministry for us to do. Stone walls do not a prison make. And what we see in today's text is Christ's prisoners, whether it's Paul or Peter or throughout all of the book of Acts, Christ's prisoners set the prisoners free. That the real prisoners are not Paul and Silas. The real prisoners are all the other people that these evangelists, these missionaries have been sent in to deliver. So if you're taking notes today, there are four ways we see transformation unlocked from this text all the way to the end of the chapter. So the first point, you can grab that little journal if you want. Grab a pen. Those are free for you. By the way, the Bibles are free as well. Take one if you don't have one to follow along. Christ prisoners, first, they unlock for us. Christ prisoners unlock saving hope. Christ prisoners unlock the first of the four points in the sermon is saving hope. And this is the first section, so I'll also preach the household next. But let's just look at this jailer. This jailer who we saw a little bit earlier after they had been inflicted many blows by the magistrates, by the police, They've been handed off to this jailer to keep them safely, we're told in verse 23. He received the order, aye, aye, captain, just following orders, threw them right into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks, and in the middle of the night, 
Paul and Silas are singing hymns. Paul and Silas are praying. The other prisoners are listening. And I think the other jailer is listening initially. But we're actually told eventually he nods off. He falls asleep. And it's not their loud singing. And it's not their earnest praying that wakes them up. It is a supernatural earthquake that shakes that prison to its very foundation. Now, when earthquakes supernaturally happen in the Bible, God is showing up in power. Mount Sinai at the foot of the mountain, the earth quaked and shook. Acts chapter 4, as they prayed for the Spirit to fill them, we're told the whole room shook. At the cross, when Jesus Christ died, this unnatural earthquake where the rocks burst forward. So he wakes, he snaps awake, and all of a sudden he realizes that all the doors are open, but it's dark and he can't see. And so he thinks to himself, I am dead meat. My only job is to keep these people locked up, and they have all escaped on my watch. And so rather than just like when Peter got delivered, they did put those guards to death. He says, I'm going to do them the favor myself. He pulls out the sword, and he is about to literally commit suicide, we are told. Now, It goes without saying, if you get to a point in your life where you think suicide is the most hopeful option for you, you've really come to the end of yourself. You've really fallen into a place of hopelessness that death feels like the deliverance rather than the true enemy that it is. And so here's a man Obviously, he's concerned that they're getting away. And I I tend to use my imagination here a little bit to think at this point, his life has gotten so bad that he's just going to finish off the job, right? It's just gotten so bad that it's not even worth seeing what will happen next. I am ready to pierce myself through and just call this game over. Whether or not there's a day of judgment, he probably doesn't believe that. Whether he's an atheist or agnostic, we're told later he's so happy he believes in God. So maybe at this point he doesn't believe in God. Maybe he believes in the Greek gods of the Romans and Zeus. I don't know what he believes prior to this. We see what happens after this, but his beliefs are not working for him. His beliefs are leading him to the tip of his own sword. And in that moment of hopelessness, in that moment where he wants to throw in the towel, in that moment where he says, I'd rather be dead than live through what's about to happen, all of a sudden a voice of hope cries out in the darkness and says, do not hurt yourself. We're here. We didn't leave yet. You woke up, the door's open, but it's not over. Don't kill yourself. And I, I don't even know if Paul can see him, right? Maybe it's light up there and dark in there. I don't know how he can tell. But Paul gets in front of this man's intentions and stops him from the hopeless act of suicide that he's about to commit. You know, through COVID, we've heard the statistics of how hopeless many people have gotten Uh, The writer of Dawson's Creek, sadly, just committed suicide last week. And the statistics on teenagers, including teenage girls especially, have have started to skyrocket as as it relates to at least suicidal intent, if not suicide itself. We've talked often about how the gospel meets us in different ways, that we tend to only focus on one element, which is, okay, My sins are forgiven, and they are. And we're going to see this man's sins forgiven. But we saw earlier a woman delivered 
from spiritual bondage. Here we're going to see, yes, his sins forgiven, but a man who is at the very end of his, well, willing to make it the very end of his life, man who's completely hopeless, saying, I have no reason to live anymore. I don't even want to live anymore. And the gospel comes to him, and the gospel through the words of Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, comes to him and says, you have a reason to continue. Your life means something. It's significant. Do not harm yourself. Stop what you're about to do. And in that moment of hopelessness, hope fills his heart. Maybe for the first time in years. Where we see a complete transformation, yes, from guilt to justification, but also from despair and hopelessness to great joy that sticks in his heart forever and ever into eternity. Christ's prisoners unlock saving hope. And I don't know where you are this morning. It's been a pretty discouraging last year and a half. Would you agree? I don't know how people get through this season without Jesus. I really don't. Jesus is my only help in this time. And as it gets worse and worse, one of my prayers is like, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The more apocalyptic it gets, and I'm not predicting the end of the world. I do not know the day or the season, the time or the hour. I don't. But I can't wait. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. I really can't because that's when all the hopelessness stuff stops. Where hope finally has a, hope has a name. Did you know it? We don't have faith in faith and we don't have hope in hope. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he comes to us in those darkest places. And maybe you're here today at the very end of yourself. I want you to hear this loud and clear. Jesus gives you hope. And Jesus gives you a reason not only to live forever in heaven, but a reason to live today. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What must you do to be saved? What must you do to receive this hope? Let me tell you what you don't need to do. You don't need to become a Bible expert. You don't need to go to Bible school and seminary. You don't need to finish your Bible reading plan perfectly and never miss a day. You don't need to pray three times a day for 10 minutes a day. You don't need to be a Christian, a good Christian Boy Scout and get the Ten Commandments perfectly, though I don't want you to be a lawbreaker. I'm just that's not in the moment. What must you do to be saved? It's not complicated. I'm so thankful for verses like this where Paul's not like, well, we have this 10-week class that you can take to catechize you in the essentials of the faith. Let's start with the Trinity. You know. You don't need to understand the Trinity. Please don't deny it, but you don't need to understand the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just believe. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Amen? Simple as that. And you'll spend the rest of your life into eternity seeing how deep that is too. Because the gospel is so simple that a toddler can believe in it with childlike faith. And so deep that theologians will study it to their last breath and wish they had centuries more to mine the complexities of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But dip your toe in. The mercy of Jesus is a deep ocean, 
But all you have to do is get into the weight of the little edge of it and you are in. You are in, you are saved, and hope will wash over you just like the waves and pull you into his great bottomless mercy that knows no end. And in this moment of crisis, and sometimes God uses crisis in our lives to break us, not to keep us broken, but so that we can be healed. And if you're here this morning saying, I'm ready to give up, and you find yourself at church or watching online, let me tell you, this is not a coincidence. Just like this Philippian jailer, God has brought you to this precipice, not to finish the job, but to give you hope in the midst of your hopelessness. Sometimes we need to exhaust all other options to realize we needed Jesus all along. Put your hope in Jesus. Christ prisoners unlock saving hope. Secondly, Christ prisoners unlock, you can pass over those lyrics, guys, household joy. Christ prisoners unlock household joy. I'm going to reread verses 31 through 34. And they said, so this is after he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you, you as an individual will be saved. But listen to this, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Christ's prisoners unlock household joy. These texts, this is the third household of five household baptisms in your New Testament. One of them is referenced in 1 Corinthians. But we saw Cornelius and his household get baptized. We saw Lydia and her household get baptized. We see the Philippian jailer and his household get baptized. And in American Christianity, this blows our minds because we always think it's just me, personal relationship. Whatever happens to my wife and kids, that's their personal relationship. We don't think in terms of collectivism here, the sense of community. But what we see in ancient times in most communities all throughout the world who are not Americans living in 2021 is that we move together. And when this happens, of the household, this Philippian jailer gets saved, it does not stop with him as as the dad and as the husband. It starts to spill through his whole household, and they all look to the chief. I've said this before, you to reach the village, you reach the chief, right? And so they're listening, and I don't think their kids, if, if it's his kids, I don't think it's his wife, I don't think their faith is inauthentic in any way, like, well, he had a real experience, and theirs is just kind of following his coattails. No, I think the whole household legitimately said, you say yes to Jesus, what, a miracle? We saw an earthquake? Dad, dad is not a, he's not out of his mind right now and sad and depressed all the time. He's full of joy. We are in. And the Spirit of God unlocks their heart. And so not only is he baptized, the whole household, the whole household comes to faith in Jesus. And once again, it was not like a a 24-week class on teaching on the meaning of baptism. And if you don't believe that baptism does this, the sign and the seal of the covenant, and this is the right mode of baptism, 
there's none of that in your book of Acts. Did you notice that? I grew up in a tradition where like we kept kicking the can down later and later for baptism. Just want to make sure it's the right thing. Just not sure yet, not sure. You see in Acts, they're just like, you believe in Jesus? Where's the water? <laughs> Where is the water? He's literally, some people speculate this. He is washing their wounds. Do you see that? Some people think they might have taken the same water that they were washing the wounds and then he baptizes them, right? Like he just got this bowl. Okay, you guys are clean? Okay, now you're clean too. That he was cleaning their wounds, he was cleansing their wounds, and all of a sudden, they experiencing the cleansing of Jesus Christ, and that water hits them as a sign and seal that they belong to Jesus, and they are in. Not just the jailer, the whole family, we're in. And as that water hits them as a picture of the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit falls upon them, they realize that they belong to a family, a household that's much bigger then their dad and their husband. Now they're part of Paul's household and Silas's household. And we'll see at the very end a growing household of faith in Philippi that knows no ethnic or socioeconomic borders. They are all one family in that moment. And there's such a transformation that happens in this jailer's heart and in his family's heart. Earlier, remember when he is handed off and the jailer's following orders, throws them into the stocks, the bonds, and locks them up. He still, he never washed their wounds. They were literally just beaten, bleeding. And he threw them in and closed the door on them. They probably haven't eaten in hours. He could have cared less about them. He had so dehumanized who they were as people at that moment. Just doing my job. Just doing my job. Government says, civil authority, just doing my job. And all of a sudden, they're people. They're people with real names and real stories. And he backpedals and does what he should have done all along. He just said, before I follow orders, here's some food. Let me help you with those wounds and bandage them up before I throw you in. There is a change in his heart where he cares for them as his brothers in the Lord. And we're told there, do you see the, they rejoiced? Look at the end of uh, verse 34 again. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. To come from a point of such utter despair where you were ready to kill yourself, I wonder why he must have been like going home to his household day after day, miserable, right? Like he's coming home, how was your day? You know, that kind of, okay, dad's a little, all of a sudden dad comes home with two of the prisoners. They're all bloody. They're all dirty and hungry. He's like, guys, the greatest thing just happened. I was in the prison and all the doors opened up. What, dad, you are going. He said, no, no, no. I believed in God. We have to believe in God, family. I always taught you God wasn't real or Zeus wasn't real or whatever. There is a real God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have believed upon him and he saved me. Like, not just in my head, like I encountered God, the living God came to me. Tell them. And so Paul tells them what he preached to the jailer. He preaches to the whole household and they say, all right, dad, if you're ready to get baptized, we'll do this as a family. We'll do this together. And I'm so thankful for the households. Now, some of you have been individually baptized. We don't re-baptize here, but when people come to faith in Christ as a household and the whole family comes into the church to take on the sign and the seal of that covenant, it's a great privilege to stand with moms and dads and kids together and say, we are in. in collectively, 
we as a family, just like the people of Israel, this promise is for you and for your offspring. And so if you haven't been baptized or your children haven't been baptized, we would be honored to do that on a Sunday or even in our Ridley Creek baptisms in August. So you can reach out to us about that. But the thing I want you to see here is just the joy. The joy, the joy, the joy from hopelessness to salvation, from hopelessness to joy. And that joy is not quarantined just to dad. That joy is something that dad shares with the whole household. And for all of us as leaders of our household, men and women, God can use you to spread the joy of your salvation. Keep praying for your kids. Keep praying for those you have influence over in your life. Continue to spread the joy of Christ, the hope of Christ to them. So Christ prisoners, they unlock saving hope. They unlock household joy. Thirdly, they unlock government reform. Government reform, verses 35 through 39. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police you're wondering who these magistrates were, they showed up in verse 22. The crowds joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. That was earlier, verse 22. So the magistrates sent the police again, the police who beat them, let those men go. And the jailer got that, orders, reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates are sent to uh, let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Listen to Paul. Paul. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. <laughs> I just love that, that picture. Now, you have to understand that this is your first Sunday here. You didn't hear the sermon two weeks ago. Look at your Bibles at verse 21 and 22. This is when the owners of the slave woman drug them into the center of the city to get them arrested. They said, they advocate, do you see that verse 21? They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off of them. So you remember we talked about how they incited, uh, they incited racism against them. These men are Jews, so anti-Semitism. And then they pulled out the law and order rhetoric. They are breaking the law. They they're doing customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to practice or believe. So they're like, that's terrible. And they beat them up and throw them into prison. We find out here, and this is the first time you as the reader, or me as the preacher, in the book of Acts realize this. Paul and Silas are Roman citizens too. Paul was born with his Roman citizenship. To be a Roman citizen in ancient times, it often costs a lot of money. To be born a Roman citizen, man, you had some serious cred and connections. Where he grew up in Tarsus, he's born into his Roman citizenship. And Silas, though his mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. Probably through that inherited his Roman citizenship. Now, it's kind of horrific to think that there's two standards of law. Like, not a Roman citizen, they could, they could beat you just like that. And you had no recourse. You didn't have any rights, all right? You don't have the right to remain silent. You don't have any of that stuff. You just, you just got to do. You're in Rome. The Romans have authority over you. You're in their jurisdiction, but you're not Roman. But here's the secret we discover here. 
Those guys were breaking the law, not Paul and Silas. They were Roman citizens, and the Roman authorities and the Roman police were breaking their own laws. All disguised by saying that these guys are the lawbreakers, and meanwhile, it was the government breaking the law in that moment. And Paul is not going to let them off that easy. Paul is going to call them out in that moment and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, God's law and Roman law are not the same thing, all right? So there is a distinction. But Paul is not going to just put his tail between his legs and walk away. What they did to these men was unjust. And he's going to leverage the justice of the Roman system, which is correct, that they should have had a trial. They should have been able to defend themselves before they were beaten and locked up. You can't do that in Rome to other Romans. And so he says, they think they can get away with this secretly? No. They beat us publicly. They are going to apologize to us publicly. And so now it's not Paul and Silas putting their tail between their legs and sneaking out of the city. It is the magistrates. It is the police. It is them going to them. And Paul could have been way harder on them than he was. They are fearful. Did you notice that? They're like, they were afraid when they found out because if that got up to Rome, this was a Roman colony, they could have lost their status as a Roman colony for violating Roman law. I mean, this is like a state getting kicked out of the Union, right? Like, we would do that very easily in the U.S. But in Rome, they could do that. Say, because this was a Greek colony that had now came under Roman protection, Roman rule. So they were quivering in their boots. And all Paul wanted... He wasn't threatening them. He just wanted them to come and acknowledge that they were wrong. And Paul and Silas give us one of the first Christian sit-ins. You know what I'm saying? Like, where they're not, they're not leaving until the authorities come and acknowledge that what they did was wrong. And as Christians, there is a tension. There is a tension between obeying and submitting to the government and being an agent of reform in the government. It's beyond the scope of today's message to cover all the contours of that. I mean, Paul wrote Romans 13, and many Christians, especially Protestants in our land, we run to Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities. But in this moment, the governing authorities say, leave quietly, and Paul says, no way, I am not going to do that. So Paul cannot be contradicting himself. What is he doing here? Yes, we obey the governing authorities when it's just and right. But we as Christians also have a responsibility when we see something wrong to reform it. We do. And I mean, that's another narrative throughout your whole Bible. Moses stands up against Pharaoh, right? The, the king of the land and says, let my people go. There is a John the Baptist who stands up against Herod and says, it is not lawful for you to be married to that woman. There is this whole other thing where the disciples are thrown in prison. Why? Because they are breaking unjust laws. And they'll do it over and over again. Ultimately, to overthrow the whole Roman Empire. So the Christianity, Jesus becomes Lord, even of Rome. And the complexities of this, I'm not going to make it seem like, oh, this is how easy it is. And Christians even disagree. I just want you to see that both of these themes run concurrently in your Bible. And so sometimes, Christian, you are called to conserve what is there. Sometimes you are called to bring progress from what is there. 
And I don't think we should fall into either political party. I don't think the Democrats or the Republicans or America has a corner on the law of God. I think that we need to be Christians first and look at our local civil authorities and say, God, help me to be an agent of truth and reformed and not to become hyper-politicized either. My last thought under this point, sociologists are basically saying now, and I think this is right, that most Americans are politically loyal first, even more than their religious commitments. Religion has become downstream. We take our political commitments and then we baptize them with Bible verses. We basically have lefty churches and right churches, you know what I'm saying? Like, and they're all self-righteously throwing bombs and Bible verses at one another. Why? Because they're not Christians first anymore. The Bible is not first anymore. They have a platform and it's not the scriptures anymore. It is a political platform that changes and they just adjust with that platform and find scripture to baptize it to make them feel good. Church... Jesus does not ride on the back of a donkey, and he does not ride on the back of an elephant. We must be kingdom-minded. We must keep Jesus as king. Jesus is not an American. Did you know that? Jesus is not an American. And so we must be continually kingdom independence, loyal to King Jesus, and always listening to our brothers and sisters who are committed to Jesus who see things a little bit differently. I'm not saying you have to switch your ideological commitments, but I want you to listen, both sides. I've said this to Ron and Esteban often. I want to be the kind of church where a black Christian and a white cop who both love Jesus can worship together. Not always agree on everything, but listen. Listen to each other and seek to bring the healing that this nation needs. Because it's not going to stay with us in our echo chambers throwing bombs at each other. It's going to start with us at the foot of the cross, worshiping Jesus together, holding each other's hands, praying, trying to understand each other's experiences, and saying, we think we found a way together as the church, which unites us across all different backgrounds under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ's prisoners, they unlock, they unlock government reform we see in this Fourthly and finally, and this is where we will end. Christ's prisoners unlock supernatural unity. Supernatural unity. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Again, if you're new to this series, Lydia was our first convert in all of Europe. Go to the beginning of the chapter. And Lydia, I say supernatural unity because let's start with this jailer. This jailer was Roman. If you're a Roman, you're in charge of the Roman police, right? Like he's Roman. He's probably a retired uh, army vet. And so this guy, most of the jailers used to be serving in the army. And so he's a, basically he's a, He's an indigenous, retired, or middle-class vet. He's a, vet, a veteran. And so he takes this job as kind of a cushy at the end of, of your serving out in the field. But Lydia, she's an immigrant from Asia. Asia Minor, that is. She's an Asian immigrant who is selling purple goods. She is uber wealthy, so she's a wealthy, upper-class immigrant living in a Greco-Roman colony outside of her homeland, making tons of money. The single woman who's rich and an immigrant. 
Then we have this slave woman. Do you remember her? She's the second picture. So these are the brothers. These are the brothers and sisters that verse 40 hits. Who was delivered from her slavery and in bondage to this evil spirit who was still impoverished, probably very indigenous, grew up likely Greek because this was a Greek colony that then the Romans took over. And so she's likely Greek. So we got this Greek guy, Greek girl, forgive me. We have this Latin, and she's lower class. We have this Latin middle class army vet. We have this upper class wealthy immigrant. And all of a sudden, Paul and Silas are going back to the brothers. And all of that disappears because in Philippi, there's not the Greek church. There's not the Latin church. There's not the mainline church and the Delco church. There's just the church in Philippi. And they are all worshiping Jesus together. And they are all encouraged and encouraging because the gospel breaks down all of those distinctions and reunifies you humanity around the person and work of Jesus Christ because it takes no supernatural power to pull all the Asians together it takes no supernatural power to put all the vets it takes no supernatural power to get Delco to hang out with Delco and the mainline to hang out with the mainline to get immigrants to start their own speaking church in their own mother tongue That's not a miracle. What is a miracle is when they all lay those secondary and tertiary differences aside and say, Jesus, because of Jesus, I love you. I might not even see the world exactly how you see it, but I want to see it through your eyes because you are now my brother and you are now my sister. I've never had a really rich friend. Thank you, Lydia, for opening your home. And Lydia's probably never been friend with a servant before. But all of a sudden, they're sisters in Christ. And this vet has probably never hung out with immigrants before. And all of a sudden, they are all together in the same church, worshiping Jesus together. So what we see at the end of Philippi is what Paul wrote later in his epistles where he says, there's no Jew or Greek. By the way, I didn't even bring Paul and Silas who are Jews into this. Jews and Gentiles, that distinction is obliterated, but all of them are. That's just the type of things that God tears down these walls and makes one new man, replacing the fractured humanity of Babel with the unified humanity under Jesus Christ as Lord. And Manoah, you've heard me say this before if you're new to Manoah, my heart for us is that God would remove the barriers. I've already hinted at a few. I don't want to be a Delco or Mainline, Haverford or Havertown church. I want to be a Jesus church that pulls people from both. I don't want to be a a white Protestant church. (laughs) Or, you know, whatever. The the ethnic minority that you pick, and now we have a Spanish-speaking service, and now we have, you know, all these things. They're separated, but they meet a different... No, no, just us. We're doing small group together, it's us. Some of you are going up to the cool homes on the main line, it's just us. Some of you guys are going into the the Delco homes, it's just us. And we don't self-select and sort ourselves by those things, it's just us. It's us, it's the brothers. It's the brothers and the sisters, and we are encouraged and encouraging one another. That is the miracle of the book of Acts, and I long to see that miracle in Havertown today. Do you? Do you believe God can do it? He is doing it. He will do it. And that is not some vision foisted on your Bibles from 2021. That is the original vision coming to us 
in 2021 saying, church, we are lagging. (laughs) There was a principle that took the storm, the church growth by storm. It was called the homogeneous principle, which is the fastest way to grow a church is to target one demographic exclusively. And that might work to grow a church faster, but it will not make it a biblical church. And it will not make it a church that solves the ills of 2021. It'll just lock us into our echo chambers even further. May we be a church that sees the walls through the gospel of Jesus Christ come down. May we be truly promoting a message of reconciliation that reconciles us first to God and to one another. Jesus can do it. Jesus has done it in a much harder setting than the U.S., by the way. If it could happen in Rome, it can happen in the United States of America. And so as we wrap up today's message, and as we wrap up kind of this three-part vignette of Philippi, I want you just to see the miracle that God did at Philippi and believe him for that miracle today. That the same God that was an overcomer there, the same God that can deliver a woman from her love of wealth, the same God that can deliver a woman from her bondage to spiritual powers outside of Christ, the same God that can deliver a hopeless jailer can deliver you and me from all the idols that ensnare us so that we can worship the true and living God together here at Manoa Community Church. Amen. Church, let's stand and close with one final song of worship together. As we turn our hearts back to singing a final song of praise, I do want to pray for us. So let's bow our heads and pray. If you're here this morning and you're feeling hopeless like that Philippian jailer, I just want to pray for you first without anybody looking around but me, could you just raise your hand if you're feeling like you need prayer for hope right now? If you're feeling like you're in a spot of hopelessness, I see you. Who else? I see you. Who else? In addition to that group, if any are here that want to receive Christ, raise your hand as well. Well, Father God, for those who lifted their hands earlier, you see, and you knew, you know, Sometimes the lifting of the hand is as much for ourselves, just to acknowledge where we're really at, to take off the mask and say, God, I'm at the bottom. God, just like this Philippian jailer today, you have brought these men and women to this room to hear this message. And even for those of you at home who are listening, who raised a hand in your home, and God would speak hope to you. And the same question that was on the lip of the Philippian jailer, what will deliver me? What will save me? What must I do to be saved from my sin? And what must I be do, do to be saved from myself and my hopelessness? That message is, the answer is the same answer for you, belief. And so God, I pray, I pray that that phrase to believe on Jesus would not be a pat answer, that it wouldn't just be a cognitive answer, that I believe these facts about Jesus, but no, Jesus, the living Savior, that Jesus, that you would come by your spirit and impart supernatural hope right now to these individuals, that because you live, because you live, Lord Jesus, they can face tomorrow. Because you live, Lord Jesus, all fear is gone, and they can face tomorrow knowing that you live. So pour out your resurrection power and life upon those who lifted a hand. And for any who do not know Jesus, today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, today would be the day where you just reach out to Jesus and say, I believe. 
I believe in you, Lord Jesus. Come into my life and forgive me of all of my sins. And for the church, God, we pray that we would be agents of supernatural unity in 2021. Lord, we pray that we would be a presence to conserve the good things in this nation. And we pray that we would be a presence to bring transformation and change where it needs to happen, Lord. And we pray for discernment as a people to be able to tell the difference and even to disagree with one another charitably, believing the best of one another's motives. And so God, we ask God that we would be Christians first, that we would be Jesus lovers first, and the implications of that would work itself out in this supernatural community where we both speak the truth in love and we listen to each other in love. May we be salt. May we be light here in Havertown, in Delaware County, greater Philadelphia, and to the ends of the earth we pray for your glory. Do it, Lord Jesus. Amen.